Hello, everyone, and welcome to Everyday Linux, episode 169, Tax, Talking Law, and Politics, recorded November 16th, 2014, and brought to you by Element OP Productions, elementopie.com. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to the Linux show that's not about Linux, but about life in the context of Linux. I am your host, Mark, the Sultan of the Soapbox Cockerel, and we are joined this week by, at the moment, only Seth the Gooey Kid Anderson. Hello, Seth. Hey, Mark, and welcome to the Element OP Faithfulite braving the freezemageddon yes. of 2014. The temperature dropped below 70, therefore the South is, is withering and dying. Yes. Darn that global warming. <laughs> Can't handle much more of this. Uh, Chris is not with us at the moment. Not sure if he's going to be here at all. He, uh, uh, I'm not going to, I don't know. He's just said he may not be here. So that, that, you know what I know. So tonight's show, we say it's not about Linux. Tonight's show is really not about Linux. We're going to talk about stuff we know nothing about. That's nothing new. But we're, we're going to expand the horizon of things we know nothing about. Uh, and this show is going to be entirely about uh, the legal system uh, in the U.S. particularly uh, and politics in the U.S. particularly. I say that to say that if you're in, say, Sweden, you might want to just turn this off right now. Um, we'll see you next week. But uh, there, there are a couple of things. One is a listener feedback that uh, I think is going to take more than just a couple of minutes of discussion, and the other is uh, a uh, a statement that our illustrious president here in the U.S. made this week regarding net neutrality that I think we need to spend some time discussing. So that's the focus of our show this week, um, and there's going to be a little tech news, of course, and and our uh, commentary. But it's just um, it's two people talking about stuff they are not qualified to talk about. I just want to put that right up front. Right, but I mean, you know, otherwise, I'd only be allowed to talk about fast food and movies <laughs> produced between 1980 and 2005, so. Yeah, I mean, like I said, nothing new there. Um, yeah, and, and when you say all show, you mean the five or ten minutes that isn't us vamping, so. <laughs> so I want to start by setting the record straight. No Shave November. Is not about prostate cancer awareness. I've heard that. I heard it just today in a media setting, and it and I was like, "This is ridiculous." Okay, first off, no shave November. November, in case you're not aware of it, um, is a thing where you don't shave. Guys, um, take this opportunity to not shave, grow a little beard, um, and when their wives complain about it, they can say, "But it's for prostate cancer awareness." It's not. Anybody ever actually looked it up? I doubt it. Nobody does. I did. No Shave November is uh, is about, it is cancer, uh, it is a cancer-related cause. It's not a raising awareness. I hate it when people say that. Does, is anybody unaware of cancer? Uh, breast Cancer Awareness Month What's in the U.S. You know, uh, we're all aware that breast cancer is a thing. It's really Breast Cancer Fundraising Month. And I'm fine with that. I just wish they would call it that. October is all about raising money. So here's the thing. No Shave November was started by a particular family, the Hill family, whose dad had cancer. And they wanted to see what they could do about it. And they thought, you know what? Everybody shaves, man or woman. Pretty much everybody shaves. There are the few bohemian women who eschew that. Uh, but for the most part, m most people shave something. So let's take the month of November and take the money that you would have spent on shaving supplies, on shaving cream, on razor blades, on whatever else. Donate that money 
to the American Cancer Society. That's what No Shave November is about. It's not just for guys to grow beards. It's for women to let their legs get fuzzy and and for for everybody to just go bohemian for a while, go caveman, and take the the money that you would have spent on products and donate to the American Cancer Society. It's not for awareness. It's it's just a it's a fun thing. It all started out, you know, growing a mustache, right? Um, and you get your little mustache badges. But I just wanted to put that out there because it's 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 a fine cause, right? But nobody's doing it right. Much like the ALS Ice Bucket Challenge, <laughs> nobody is actually doing it the way it was intended to be. If you're growing a beard for uh, No Shave November, awesome. Make a donation too. That's the whole point. It's not whoa, about just whoa, <laughs> yeah. Easy there, easy there. You give money. What are you talking that's about? The whole point is not just about growing a beard in the name of cancer. Frankly, that's stupid. And that's what it's. It's November. It's cancer. I'm growing a beard. No, don't grow a beard in the name of cancer. Give a donation, roughly equivalent to the amount that you would have spent on shaving supplies. Or here's a better idea: fifteen times that much because razor blades are cheap. Uh, Mark, have you seen the price of a pack of disposable razors uh, from Gillette? I would have to take out a payday loan to afford <laughs> such a thing. They are not cheap. Well, this is where we need like Dollar Shave Club or Harry's to come sponsor yeah. us too. I've, I've so, been uh, shaving with an electric shaver for almost 20 years now, but back when I used a blade, I bought the little yellow and white Bix for 10 for a, a buck. Um, so I, I know the new Gillette. 17 blade gel stripe that oozes plutonium is pretty expensive but there there you go that's the whole point take that money spend it uh, or donate it to the american cancer society that's it that was my rant my first rant for the night Seth, anything no no not really i uh i just you know, I remember like when I was in college, I would try to grow some type of facial hair and it would take months and months for it to look just <laughs> ugly. Right. Uh, now it can look ugly in a couple of days, but it just, it doesn't turn into a beard. It just is this stuff that springs up on my face that is, you know, I'm not a handsome man anyway, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> I'm not a handsome man, but I know what a beard is. So I started yeah. growing a goatee in 1994 for one simple reason when i shaved i always cut myself under the nose and on the upper lip that was the area so i thought well if i grow a goatee i won't have to shave that area and i couldn't just grow a mustache because even now my mustache is pretty pathetic it needs the rest of the facial hair to to sort of pull it along and say you know up here is the the appearance of what might be a mustache but look the rest of the face is hairy so it's okay um, right. So it was a very pragmatic purpose. Uh, and then, I don't know, off and on over the years, I've let the full beard grow. Uh, my wife likes it because when I'm fully shaven, I look very young. And she's already sensitive about the fact that she's a few years older than I am. So she gets visibly upset anytime I shave. And it's easy for me. All I have to do is shave my neck a few times a, a week or a month, really. And I'm good. So that's that's why I have the beard. It has nothing to do with cancer. It's laziness. That's why my hair is buzz cut, because I can just run a bar of soap through it and be done. That's the whole point. That's my Amen, brother. That's my personal grooming techniques right there. I, a bottle of shampoo will last me almost a year. 
I, I actually I had that conversation just yesterday. I live in a house with four women with very long hair, all of them. We go through I'm not kidding, Seth, two bottles of shampoo a month just for them. I go through two bottles of shampoo a year, if that much. Um Yeah. So buy know. stock in Pantene, people. <laughs> Definitely. I uh yeah, I that's the whole reason I started getting my hair cut short is just you know, the thing I like is whenever I get out of the shower and I want to dry it, I just take my hand and do that. And it dries my hair. Yeah. And uh, it's a squeegee, so yeah. squeegee effect. Yeah. Pretty I made much. the decision like in 11th grade, 10th grade, somewhere around that area, that it was all putting lipstick on a pig, no matter what I did, right? I could mousse and gel and style and wear the acid wash jeans. Don't laugh. They were cool. Um, I could do all of that, but it wouldn't matter. I'm still a fat, ugly guy. That's just the way it is. So I decided to just go with it. And and go low maintenance instead. Yep, ditto with that. So, <laughs> wow, that was that was a digression that is that is unusual even for this show. So let's jump yes. right into the listener feedback. We just have one this week, and Miles asks about the podcast patent. He says hi guys. Firstly, I love your show. It's one of my favorite listens in my podcatcher, and I'm always looking forward to a new episode. I tend to agree with your v- viewpoints about 95% of the time. That's amazing. I don't agree with my viewpoints 95% of the time. So I'm curious about a subject that is near and dear to my heart. I'm hoping that you're willing to share some thoughts on it. You're probably aware of the recent battle in the courts over the so-called podcast patent. This is a typical example of a patent troll. In this case, personal audio, and in, particularly a, in particular, a gentleman by the name of Jim Logan and his attorney friends, who state that they invented podcasting way back in 1996. Of course, we all know this is false because the iPod was never invented then. Okay, I'm going to stop you right there, Miles. Podcasting and the iPod aren't necessarily the same thing, and podcasting existed before there was an iPod. Um, it was just called downloading audio we didn't have a name for it or the, this name for it they were netcasts or or web radio shows there were other things like that I, I always like to distinguish make that distinction whenever possible podcasting and the ipod may have grown together but they did not start their lives together and they are certainly not one and the same uh, moving right along. Um, however, through a series of legal magical tricks, he's been able to make a patent that was for something entirely different, reading magazines on audio tape, and manipulate it over the years so that he's been able to shake down the likes of Apple and CBS to gain millions in damages for a so-called infringement. Personal Audio makes no products, and they openly admit this in their website. They have inter- been interviewed on NPR to try to bolster support for their cause, and with great success, not uh, with a great deal of suppress, success, not surprising. I'm a proud p- member of the EFF, and it's highly likely that the EFF's fight against this case will strike down the patent itself soon. Additionally, more prominent actors in the space, namely Adam Carolla, was able to gather enough groundswell support to force Personal Audio to drop their litigation against his company and settle their claims. But even with these wins, they're still out there extorting all away to the bank. I suspect this speaks more to the bigger issues of software patents in general, but since it's about podcasts and you're a podcaster, I was sure you might have some interesting thoughts on the subject. My concern with all of this is that anyone who has a legitimate idea wants to build it in their garage and is planning to bring it to market reads about this type of patent troll out there and basically just shelves the whole idea because it's too hard to fight for their right to invent. 
Only the big corporations who can offer these uh, can afford these battles will likely produce anything, and I fear that strikes a blow to the heart of the American inventiveness and freedom. What do you think? Again, love the show and keep up the great work. So before I begin to pontificate, Seth, I will let you have a turn. What are your thoughts? Well, I think we've actually talked about this before. Um, I don't remember what episode, but I totally agree with the views you're espousing there. There is so much crap that passes for patents that are out there. And like I say, there's been some uncommon sense turned up recently and uh, some of it is going away, but I totally agree with you. There's a lot of people who won't, um, you know, they won't develop their ideas or, you know, these um, patent holding companies, they go out and they buy patents cheap. So you have a product you have an idea that could be a billion dollar idea. You can make Facebook, Google, HP, Microsoft, and Apple obsolete tomorrow, but you don't want to risk it. So you sell your idea to this patent conglomerate for 50 bucks or whatever, and they don't understand it. So they're not able to do anything, but it just bolsters their patent count uh, for lawsuits and litigation purposes. And it kills, it kills uh, innovation, it kills development, uh, because you're pricing the, well, with fear, you're the, the garages where all the great technology companies were built, garages and dorm rooms, you know, HP, uh, Google, Facebook, they, they won't happen anymore because people will be afraid of getting sued by these lawyers who that's their job. They've got to have some reason to sue. So they go up and buy patents and they've got millions of dollars and you have an idea and an old underpowered laptop and you're going to try to change the world. And so you say it's not worth it. I give up, you know, forget it. And it is a blight in uh on the American creative landscape. So I totally agree with you. Now, Q mark for pontification number two. Go. <laughs> so let's define patent. Um, the patent is defined as, quote, a government authority or license conferring a right or title for a set period of time, especially the sole right to exclude others from making, using, or selling an invention. Okay. That makes perfect sense. If I invent something, the the world's greatest toenail clipper and I want to make it and sell it, it's an easily reverse engineerable thing. So the first person who gets it, who, not the first person, but the first person who's um, engineer and mind, engineer minded, re- reverse engineers it, didn't have to do any design or, or research and development and can sell it uh, at half the price. And he, boom, takes me out of the market. That happens all the time. There's, there's the reason that, uh, you know, the IBM clone PC existed. Because IBM did all the work, other people reverse engineered their chips, you know, AMD, Cyrix, remember Cyrix? Um, those guys did that and, and you know, it, it worked. They they worked around the system to reverse engineer the, the device without actually infringing on patents. Patents are good. Patents are noble. Patents are useful. People won't invent in a capitalistic society if they can't make money off of their invention. Fact. Uh, there may be, uh, f- let's take, for example, nutrition. The, there are very few studies on things like vitamin D, for example, because there's no money to be made in it. Vitamin D isn't patentable. There's nothing you can can 
do to make it a money-making thing. You can sell it as a supplement, but you're not going to make the billions of dollars it would take to do serious research to find out whether vitamin D could cure cancer. One of the claims I've heard. Um, and nobody's ever going to do these studies because the studies cost more, the research costs more than you could ever make out of it. A patent is what makes an in- invention worth happening. If I, you know, the, 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 the iPhone, their capacitive touch technology, everybody who makes one of those has to pay Apple a royalty. Why? Cause they did it first and that's fine. That's, that's all fine. There are process patents. Well, let's let's back up. There's there are design patents. I n- novelly designed something nobody else has has designed before. Solid with that. There's a utility patent. This thing is used in a way that nobody's ever used it before. I'm less okay with that, but yeah, I'm fine with that. There's process patents. I'm doing things that anybody could do, but I'm doing them in a way that nobody's ever done before. Not not entirely okay with that. And then there are these the you know these other things that that we call software patents, where it's a novel, it's almost a process, but it's even less. It's it's I'm doing a thing with a thing, and I'm protecting the patent of painting blue with a horsehair brush with my right hand while standing on one foot. Nobody else can do that. I own that. And unfortunately, that whole class of patents is what gets people into trouble. So I don't want this argument to be or this to, to to be misconstrued as I don't like patents. I think patents are necessary and useful and they're they are all by definition temporary. They expire after a while. But it's these process patents, these software patents that cause the problem. So in the case of personal audio, essentially they say that they own the concept of episodic audio content delivered over the internet. Um no so actually they don't even process they don't even say the internet their patent it's just the the process of widely distributing episodic audio content for example the radio serials that were being done in 1930 they say they own that they invented that um no (laughs) <laughs> uh, they say you know cbs news uh putting their nightly news report out on the audit on the radio they say they own that no paul harvey's news and comment that he began doing in the late 50s they say they own that no there's a reason this thing is not going to court it will not stand up in court it hasn't gone to court. It's been settled out of court. And so what they do is they go to Adam Carolla and they say, Adam, you make a million dollars a year making that up. Uh, we're going to charge you a license of 10000 a year to use our process. You could fight us in court, but you're going to spend more than $10,000 the first week that we go to court. Just give us $10,000. We'll go away. So Adam Carolla in this case didn't, but other guys that you've mentioned, Miles, um, CBS and uh, Apple and these other guys, it just wasn't worth the hassle. Okay, we'll, we, we know it's extortion, but we're, we're, going to, we're going to pay the extortion because it's cheaper than fighting it in court. And Adam Carolla showed his, his uh, ballsiness and said, no, I will take this to court no matter what. 
There's nothing you can do. There's no offer you can make me. I will take this to court. And once he proved his resolve, they suddenly settled uh, under, under terms that they're not allowed to discuss, which basically was, I think, personal audio said, okay, we'll go away and leave you alone. We give you a free license. Because the moment this thing hits the court, it's dead. There, it's, there's, there's a process. There's something called prior art. If you can prove, let me back up a little bit. For a, for a patent to be valid, there are several things that have to be true. One of is it has to be non-obvious to an expert in the field. So if you try to patent hitting a nail into a piece of wood with a piece of iron on a handle and call it the Hammerstein 2000 and say you're going to patent the process of of inserting nails into wood using impact from a piece of metal on a lever. It's obvious to an expert in the field that people have been doing that for centuries. Um, if you say I'm going to make an audible tone to let you know when somebody's trying to reach you via telephone, that's obvious to an expert in the field. There, you can't patent that. Another one is, is, is prior use. You have to be the first person to ever do it. I just, just, just off the top of my head, listed like five examples of prior use for personal audio's patent. It won't stand up in court. Not only that, but it is, it is obvious to an expert in the field. So obvious that RSS readers have been doing it for years. Uh, uh, for news groups back in the day when new content was created would send you an email or send you an alert. One of their things is, is delivering content, uh, alerting the user. That's one of the things they, uh, if I remember correctly, I may be putting two things together. But there's all sorts of process, things out there that are prior art, and it's obvious to an expert in the field. It will not stand the light of day. They don't want it. They're, they're bottom dwellers. They want to hide under the rock, and they want to snipe at somebody's heels as they walk by. If they come to me, I, I, have, I am unsuable because I own nothing, right? My, the sum, I could give them 100% of the proceeds of this show, and they would owe me $50. <laughs> I don't make any money doing this. So the you know, worst case scenario, they would, they would take my site down, uh, and I would, you know, do it live, you can't you you can't complain about somebody doing live, uh, and if you happen to record that live show and it's available on say YouTube, well that's not that's not in their patent. So I, I don't worry about it. I know a lot of podcasters have been afraid to talk about it because they, they might come after them. Personal audio can come after me. I have nothing that they can take. I'm just a little guy, which means that it's not worth the effort for them. The EFF is trying to force this, but what's interesting is the EFF has no standing, meaning nobody's come after the EFF. You can't proactively sue somebody, and these guys aren't going to sue the EFF, so they've got to hook up with somebody else. So say they come after me, I would call the EFF and say, defend me on this. Then EFF has some standing. I hope that happens. Not that they come after me, but that the EFF gets into it, because the moment this goes to court, it's dead. And we will all benefit from it dying. But they're going to not make it go to court because they know the moment it goes to court, it's dead. They would rather extort people in the darkness than let their stupidity come to the light. <laughs> no comments, Seth? Well, I mean, you've done, you did a much better job of explaining it. So it, I, it's one of those things is, you know, 
just their actions prove that what they're doing is reprehensible. Exactly. They know it's wrong. Yeah. You know, because they, they shun the light. They want to stay in the darkness. And anytime someone confronts them, they back down. They are a bully. And so we should be standing up to bullies and making them back down again. They have, and you know, and I mean, we're talking about personal audio here, but there's the sad part is there are many of these, um, patent conglomerates out there. And like you, I understand the validity of patents and I'm a big supporter of patents. Um, but the problem is the people in charge of patents for software are not experts in the field. And so you're a lawyer, you speak legalese and you can pile on the legalese and phrase it in such a way that makes what you're doing sound like a novel breakthrough thing. And so somebody who isn't an expert in the field says, wow, these people are brilliant and patent away. Whereas, you know, in some low levels, I would be considered an expert in certain aspects of technology. And even I can see that's a load of crap. And then, you know, but you get the people who invented the stuff, they can look at it and they can say it's a load of crap because of this, 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 and this, but I really wish it would go come to that far. Um, and it's going to at some point, um, but that they know it's going to take millions, potentially hundreds of millions of dollars to stop them. Meanwhile, they're, you know, as, as Miles said, what was his phrase? Uh, bullying all the way to the bank, something, he, he said something like that. Um, extorting away their way to the bank. Um, and that, yeah, that's what they're doing. And they know they're doing it. And, and, and personal audio and Jim Logan, they're not the only ones that we talk periodically on this show about stupid software patents. And, and Seth, like you, you nailed it right on the head. This should never have been a patent that was issued, but the people doing it aren't experts in, in anything but patents. Right. And so they do basically a patent search. They search their database and say, is there anything exactly like this? No. Okay, I'm going to award the patent. And then they kind of trust the courts to fix their mistakes. I'm awarding a crappy patent, and I'm trusting that a judge somewhere is going to invalidate it. You know, there was a there was a law passed in Texas a while back, and the consequence of the law was that in order to look at data on some computer that you did not own, you had to have a private investigator's license. Um, and like, I wrote my congressman about this law and said, what, you know, asking them to explain the law. And they were like, um, we just wrote the law. You will need right. to consult a lawyer to find out what it means. And I'm like, you don't know what you wrote, right. but yet you wrote this stupid law because, you know, I mean, they, their noble, their goals were noble, but because they didn't talk to anybody apparently who ever owned a computer in their life, they did something that was stupid. And, right. you know, intelligent people who acting in a field outside of their intelligence, they're morons. And, you know, I'm sure, you know, if I had a mechanical process where I had these 17 gears, 14 levers, and, you know, a couple of pin wheels, you know, they would be able to look at that and go, no, that's patent 2,789,000 just turned around backwards, rejected because they're mechanical engineers. Um, you know, but when it comes to software, they're like, 
It's got ones and zeros. Uh, I've never seen them arranged like that before. Patent. So acting outside your field, it doesn't matter your intelligence because you come off like a moron. And uh, it's happening, unfortunately. And then the way to fix it is you go to court. And so consequently, the richest group in America are lawyers. Mm-hmm. I remember because that law it, you're talking about. And, and essentially, for for anybody in Texas to repair a computer, they'd have to be a private investigator. Because you have right. to look at the, the computer to fix it, to clean or a virus data, off of it. Yeah, data recovery. You yeah. know, it's like, I can't run spin right because I'm not a PI. <laughs> what kind of stupid thing is that? Um, and I, I think it is still on the books. I just think they realize uh, maybe we'll just pretend this law doesn't right. exist. And that's, you know, that's another power that, uh, that the legal system has is to the power to ignore laws and to selectively um, uh, enforce them. Uh, a good example is that is speeding during rush hour. You, you have to be really speeding for a cop to enforce that law. Uh, I yep. mean, I flew past a cop the other day going 10 miles over, being passed by people going 15 miles over. He wasn't stopping anybody because we were not presenting a danger at that point. Going the speed limit would have presented danger because the flow of traffic was so much faster. He made a judgment call to not arrest 100% of the people driving on the road that day. But right. somebody flies by going 20 miles or 25 miles over the speed limit. He's going to stop that guy because he's dangerous. And or somebody not during rush hour going right. that fast. Exactly. So so police officers and enforcement officials, judges, they make the decisions to enforce or not enforce laws. Um but that doesn't make the law go away. And you know, there are laws today uh, my wife um puts a little note every day on the kids' napkins in their lunchbox. And she's gone through different things. She does drawings or whatever. She did puns for a while. But one one thing she went through for a while um, was uh, stupid laws that are still on the books. Like in Georgia, where we live now, it's illegal to beat your mule on Sunday. And the other day, it's fine. But it's illegal to beat your mule on Sunday. I, I have no idea why that law ever would have been useful. But it certainly isn't today. But that doesn't change the fact that it's still on the books. It's probably leftover blue law. Yeah. So the city of Kennesaw, right down the road from where I am, still has a law on the books that every head of household is required to own a firearm. It's not enforced, but it's on the books. It's a law. And back when this was a lawless area, probably uh, at, during the run up to the Civil War, totally makes sense why you would make that a law. But not now. So, yeah. but it's when still it was there. The frontier, right? <laughs> when that was the frontier, it was uh, it was important, right? Uh, you know, um, yeah. It's like there was. Um, I don't believe the law was ever passed, but there was a push, and this is back in the early days of household internet, uh, right after, like, right around two thousand, that only one device could be connected to your router. Um, like, you know, if oh, wow. you had a, and so, and it couldn't be an access point. So, you know, you, you were only allowed to have one computer. Could you imagine today if you had to pay per the number of devices accessing your router? Golly, you know, cause you got your smartphones, your tablets, your media center, your special use computer here, your special use computer there. Um, they would be killing it, but that was a, that was something they tried to push through, but luckily, it never passed because it was short-sighted. Um, and that was that was a rare case of uncommon sense breaking out in the tech field. 
in my house right now, there are 12 devices currently connected to the internet. Wow. 12. <laughs> 12. Man. I have three laptops that I'm using for the show right now. My phone, my wife's phone, two home theater systems, three tablets that are always connected whether the kids are using them or not, uh, and the router itself, 12. Wow. Yep. <laughs> so, yeah, I'm a felon 17 times over right now uh, by that law. So I, I don't think I have anything more to say about this particular thing, but as you can see, you know, we're almost 15 minutes into this discussion here. It was more than than we could than I wanted to give just a regular listener feedback. I wanted to talk about this um, in depth because it's a it's a big thing. It's way more than just this lawsuit. And of course, it uh, you know, as as Miles said, I'm a podcaster, so I might have an opinion on it. I would have an opinion on this whether I was a podcaster or not because it's it's in it's codified stupidity. And so many of the patents we have today are just that, codified stupidity. We made stupidity a law. Um, and it needs to go away. And the thing that we're going to talk about here in just a few minutes is, you know, there are more examples of that. Uh, something we talk about all the time, copyright law. Um, it's been, it, you can track it. I've said it before. It's been true that anytime Disney is about to lose the rights to Mickey Mouse, copyright law changes. Why is that? Because Disney makes a buttload of money and they give it away regularly to politicians when they're about to lose their patent, uh, their rights to Mickey Mouse. It used to be that you owned a right for the life of the art artist. So Disney dies. Everything Disney did is now public domain. Sh shortly before he died, it's the life of the artist plus 50 years. Um, and it's been modified since then, even. So it's it's there, there's codified stupidity there. Copyright is sort of like patents. You have a right to something for a while, but not forever. Uh, the Blue Danube Waltz is public domain now. Strauss no longer owns it. The Strauss um, uh, estate no longer owns it. Beethoven's Fifth was created in a world without copyrights. It became public domain the moment he wrote it. Um, could he have made money off of it during that day? I don't think so. His his money was his performance. But when it became a thing that you could make money off of the reproduction of something, copyright has its place. And I'm not anti-copyright at all because, like I said earlier about the patents, things wouldn't get made if you couldn't make money off of them. The uh, the the Marvel movies that I enjoy so much wouldn't get made if there wasn't a multi-billion-dollar paycheck at the end of them. They just wouldn't. And and that's how come you see a crappy uh, Fantastic Four movie every, I think, five or six years. Because yeah. their contract is if they don't make one within so many years, the rights revert back to Marvel, which in this case is Disney. And unfortunately, it's one of the reasons that Marvel is like killing off the Fantastic Four has a comic book is because they don't own the movie rights to right. it. So why produce fodder for someone else? X-Men uh, too. Yeah, um, you know, and that's there's a big deal in movies that like um, the Scarlet Witch and Quicksilver are going to be in the next Avengers movie. But yet you had Quicksilver in um, the X-Men movie. So it has to be 
totally different and they can't call them mutants, even though in the comics, that's what they are. So because, uh, X-Men put them in there and X-Men's owned by Sony. And so Sony has to produce an X-Men film. It doesn't have to use every X-Men character for the characters in there. As long as they produce an X-Men film, they retain the rights to the X-Men portion of the Marvel universe. Um, and it, it's one of those things that's, you know, I don't really know if it's copyright, but that it's the licensing deal they have. And without copyright, then it, licensing wouldn't matter. You could have Asylum turning out Wolverine plus Wolverine with two claws, yeah. uh, five minutes Shark after the to movie Wolverine. Came out. <laughs> yeah. And they're, 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 two, they're two sides of the same coin. Copyright is intellectual property and patent is physical property. That's how it's supposed to be. But in the case of of these you know, process patents, what are you what are you patenting? There isn't a physical thing. And a patent is was supposed to be a physical thing, or a, a yeah a, a a a way of doing something, or the implement by which you do something. Um, you know, Cyrus McCormick's Cotton Reaper is a perfect example of something that's patentable. It never existed before. It was both a machine and a process. And he could have patented, I don't know if he did back in those days, but today he certainly could have patented both of those things. And I would have said, that is an appropriate use of patent. Um, but when, pick on a drug company, Bayer has a, a, a drug that's good for cancer patients, and they're about to lose their, their copyright or patent, whichever it is, on it, so they in- introduce a new version that has is the same drug now with an antacid. You know that's an abuse of the system. It happens all the time. You add aspirin to something and release it again under a new name, or I'll call it plus or something like that, and that's it's a way of cheating the system. Um, in the physical world, that's a little harder to do. So we have other ways around it, and it's it's a it's a broken system. I'm not even mad at personal audio. They're working the system to their advantage. They're they're scumbags, but they're scumbags who are working within a broken system. So, you know, I'm yeah. not I'm not I'm not saying that what they're doing is wrong. Uh, well, it's yeah, it's it's. Well, we had that conversation a while right. back. It's Ethical not, versus legal. Yeah, it's not illegal, but it's dang sure unethical, and yeah. So yeah, it's one of those things. I I despise what they're doing, but part of it is because I don't have the money to do it myself. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Um, all right. I, I think th- we've done that. Um, let's do just a little news to sort of cleanse the pot, um, and then we'll jump into the main topic here. Also, I got to figure out how to get an ad in there. Um, on this on this topic, tangentially related to this topic. Taylor Swift has yanked her music from Spotify saying my music deserve is, is worthy of being paid for. And I'm not going to put it on a service where it can be had for free. Now, initially she tried to just pull it from the free side of Spotify, the ad supported side and leave it on the, um, the supported, the, uh, subscription side though. They wouldn't do that. Uh, so the label just yanked it from Spotify. It's still everywhere else, <laughs> but I, this was a statement thing. She said, 
you know the the modern uh, process uh, uh, makes people feel like music is not worth paying for, and I don't agree with that. Right, um, you know, and Spotify is kind of us. Uh, you know, they say they give about 70% of their revenue goes to labels. Uh, and so, you know, Taylor Swift would get her cut of her labels money that they receive. Um, and they, they're saying Spotify is saying she could have made millions doing it. But, um, yeah, so I just, I, I found this story in several places. And so I wanted to throw it out there. Um, I'm not a huge Taylor Swift fan. Um, I don't listen to a lot of country music anymore, but it seems like, you know, she's one of the really popular kind of across, not just in country, but like teen and pop people like her a lot too. And so her doing this, it has really brought the whole, um, you know, should you be able to listen to music for free over the internet, uh, kind of out in the open for a, a big debate on that. Um, so yeah, she pulled it and, uh, I guess it's good for her, but I don't know if it's good for everybody else. I mean, I totally agree. She makes music. Uh, music is a thing and it's worthy. It's a worthy profession. And if you're good at it, you deserve to make money doing it. I'm not saying that, Oh, you're a musician. You know, you should subsist on public handouts and whatever you can find in garbage cans. Uh, I don't believe that, but you know, at the same time, I don't see myself ever paying for a Spotify. But then again, you know, I listen to the radio and I'm happy with what comes on the radio. Um, I buy an artist CD, you know, knowing that, Hey, I've bought them before because I've liked one song on it. And then I've been surprised that some of the others I liked as well. Um, uh, but I just, I don't spend a lot of money on music. So this is one of those things where, you should make money, but I'm probably not going to give it to right. you. So, well, uh, what what I want to you 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 said something there that is a common misconception, and I I want to correct it. Um, you said that that you don't pay uh for her music because you don't pay for Spotify. You do. If you ever use Spotify, you're paying for it in the form of ad impressions. If you use Pandora, even if you don't subscribe to it, you've got to listen to those ads. If you listen to this show, you're paying for it by listening to our Linux Academy ads. Um, that's that's the way this works. So the music industry, uh, in this case, in the form of Taylor Swift, likes to call people who use the free versions of Spotify and the free versions of Google Play Music and the free versions of Pandora as freeloaders. They're not. They are making. They're they're paying into the marketplace as it exists right now there is a market that says if you listen to these ads you can have the content for free and that marketplace is called everything i mean television doesn't exist without ads right the the only place it does is pbs and then you have to listen to them three or four times a year do nothing but ads for a day or a week it still adds it's just a different model uh and and so it's not right to say that me who doesn't have a subscription to Spotify but listens to the free version, it's not right to say that I am a freeloader. I am paying it. And I am paying for it by my attention or my impressions on those ads. And and so that's the that's the disconnect. Uh the CEO uh, I think it was a CEO, there was a high ranking member of of Spotify who did a, a, an article different than the one we linked to, uh estimated, because he didn't have hard numbers, that his that Spotify paid the 
six million dollars just to Taylor Swift's label for her for her plays last year. That's not free. And and she's saying that I don't like the impression that my music is free. It's, it's not free. You were paid six million dollars, or your label was. The odds are you got almost none of that. But that's because you made a deal with the label. You got to take that up with with whoever owns your music. By the way, it's not you. You don't own your music. You sold it to get an album made. Yeah, I'm curious because one of the things in this article says uh, the streaming service revealed last year that it pays artists an average of less than a penny per play. So I'm curious, how much does a radio station fork over in license? You know, how, you know, how much is, uh, you know, Taylor Swift getting because some country station plays, I don't even know the name of one of her songs. Uh, how much does she get per play from radio stations? Probably about the same, but here's the difference. Um, you release certain songs to radio play, right? So when Taylor Swift comes out with a new album, she's got one song that's going to be on the radio. Then maybe later she'll release a second one. Um, okay. If you want that one song, at least in you know pre in the pre iTunes era, if you wanted that one song, you had to go buy all fourteen of them on the CD. Um, right. I have many many CDs in my collection that I bought because I like one song on the album. Um, and Apple broke that model with the iTunes single song pricing, and the industry reeled from it because they were they were creating an artificial demand for their music. No, Metallica, I didn't want your cover of um so what it wasn't a cover but your remake of so so what on the smn album i didn't want that one when i ripped that song when i ripped that uh, dvd i pulled that song off of it because i don't want it but you made me buy it because i bought your album so that model is now being turned on its end so it's not that that the the music industry is being disrupted it's that they created a disruptive model and now it's falling apart. And, you know, in tandem with that is this another article that you've put up there that the era of free digital music is waning. Yeah, that was um, this one actually came off of Yahoo. I ran ran across it. But, um, you know, industry, music industry, um, they are trying to basically kill the free versions of Spotify or Pandora. They want everything to be subscription based. And like, I know Chris has, uh, he does the subscription to, I don't remember Pandora. which one he's Pandora. Uh, you know, I've listened to Pandora some, I, I didn't like the way it ran. Um, so I, I kind of quit, but you know, YouTube has recently announced a, uh, or unveiled a streaming, a subscription model for, and, one of the things that came out, I think it was earlier this year I ran across YouTube is actually the largest purveyor of music on the internet. I was like, what YouTube, yep. Yep. but you go to watch videos. Um, yeah, I certainly know that from, from my time in, in school districts when these kids were, you know, 20 of them in a class when they had free time would pull up YouTube and hit their playlist and the bandwidth would go because they were sucking down 25 megabits of video to get the three megabits of the song they wanted, uh, yeah, you you. In fact, um, Google Play is uh, Google is playing into that with their new new service that's launching or has just launched. That is essentially the Google Music now with video, and so the music 
doesn't come from MP3s anymore. It comes from YouTube. So they're mining their own resource there uh, of of music. Right. Uh, here's one. Um, here's a quote from this article. Most consumers don't know the difference between Spotify and Pandora, said one label executive. Internet radio giant Pandora Media Inc. has nearly 80 million active users in the U.S., close to double the number Spotify has worldwide. iHeartMedia's iHeartRadio and Apple's iTunes Radio have about 100 million users combined, and some executives worry such personalized radio services may be blinding some consumers to the advantages of paid subscription services. So they're going to try to tweak the models and figure out more ways to encourage you to pay extra money uh, for them. So, you know, it's one of those things, if you really like something, you know, pay to not get the commercials. You know, you either choose to pay by putting up with these commercials that will build brand loyalty in your head. And like, um, you know, it's like one of the, I thought McDonald's was stupid when they dropped the, did somebody say McDonald's? Because I, I loved that, you know, then they came up with a bunch of other stupid stuff, but it's like <laughs> every time somebody say, did somebody say McDonald's? You think about going to McDonald's and then you're hungry and you, next thing you know, you're eating the quarter pounder and you're like, how did this get in my hand? <laughs> well, that, what uh, happened here? <laughs> yeah. So, you know, if you don't want to be brainwashed slowly by corporate America, then you pay the money to listen to it free. Um, you know, and so you're then, and again, like you said, that's the wrong word. You've chosen to pay up front and rather than to pay later. So I, you know, I like having the options. You can pay by you don't get to listen to as much content because you have these commercials that they sheet they seek to shape your behavior or you can be free uh and pay money and listen to it all day long you know without you know without something being stuck in your head to go eat at pizza hut uh yeah what's funny is pandora and i when i signed up for pandora i lived in the dallas market I haven't lived there in a long time. I never changed my information because there was no incentive for me to. There's no billing information. So I didn't go in and change my my address. So I still hear ads for North Texas Honda dealers when I'm, you know, listening to Pandora here. Um, you know, and that illustrates the a broken model, right? Those ads can do me no good. But it's not up to Pandora to figure out. It's not up to me to tell Pandora that I've moved. It's up to them to figure out which ads to serve me. Um, and, you know, I I live in an ad-supported world, but I do everything I can to get around ads. I'm, I'm guilty of that. I DVR almost everything I watch. Even if I'm watching it on the same night, I will pause it for 15 minutes so that I can skip over the ads because I don't like ads. Uh, I run an ad blocker not only on my laptop, but at the router level that blocks ads. I am stealing content, right? Because I'm not paying what I've agreed to pay. Uh, that's why models with the, you know, with the native content, like the way I do the show here, uh, you know, we embed the Linux Academy ad right into the show. You can skip over that. You have that choice. Uh, that's why when I'm listening to Leo Laporte, he implores his users to watch live. He he wants you to watch live because you can't fast forward through the ads if you watch live. But let's take the, him as an example. When he has a new sponsor come on, I listen to the ad, maybe the first three or four times. Then I skip over it every time thereafter because I got it. Um, and that's what I expect you to do, frankly, on this show. 
I expect you to skip over the Linux Academy ad. Sorry, Anthony. But those of you who are regular listeners already know I'm not doing you a service by saying the ad all again. It's not for you. The ad is for the new people who come in and don't know about Linux Academy. And they might want to listen to it. They might not. But the idea is that I do it every show so that new people hear about it. And you maybe you hear about it a couple of times and you're interested. At that point, you've made your decision. Either I'm interested, I'm going to go check it out, or I'm not, and you skip over it from then on. The same thing happens when I'm flipping through commercials. If I see a new one that looks funny, you know, when I'm blip, 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 flipping through, I back up. Like when the, the, the Mac versus PC ads were out with John Hodgman and Justin Long, when I saw a new one of those, I stopped and went back because it was good. It was funny. It was entertaining. Uh, not always truthful. Actually, you can yes, say never truthful. Almost never. Right. <laughs> but, uh, uh, I but don't funny. fast forward through Super Bowl commercials. So the problem is not the model. The problem is the the lack of creativity with which advertisers have fallen into this cookie cutter rut. Um, and so, the, again, it's it's working within a broken system. So I'm not bothered by you skipping over the ad because I'm consistent enough. I'm going to do the ad. In fact, I'm going to move right into that ad right now. I do the ad often enough that you know that I believe in it. That's the point of the ad. It's not so that you hear every week that linuxacademy.com is your place for step-by-step video courses designed to take you from being a Linux novice to a Linux administrator. It's not important that you hear that every week. What's important is that you hear that I believe in these people, and I do. I believe in them because they're good people, because they have a good product, because they have good customer support, and because they've been independently verified by um, third-party auditors as being high-quality content. I believe in them because I've heard from people time and time again who write into me because they heard it on this show and say, I heard about linuxacademy.com on your site. I went there. I tried it out. It's freaking amazing. It's good stuff. They have the, the, the lesson planner. I, one of the things I just got today uh, or this week, I don't remember exactly when it was, uh, was talking about their new uh, lesson plan system, this, this uh, learning plan that allows you to tell them when you're available and they customize the system for you. You select your daily availability. You say that I'm available three days a week for four hours a day, whatever. It designs a plan for you based on what you want to learn, even sends you emails letting you know when you've got an assignment due, when you've got a lesson that you've got to do, when you've got a quiz that you've got to do, when you've got a lab that you've got to do. And based on your availability, they give you a projected time of completion. I got an email just this week of a guy saying, as I'm writing this, I got the email telling me about my assignment. So when I'm when I'm done here, I'm going to go do my assignment. That's why I do these ads. Not because they pay me, but because they're good people with a good product. And I'm totally okay with that. Not just because they pay us. Not just because they – well, yeah, I'm, I'm, uh, transparency here. I would never do the ad if they didn't pay me. Sorry, that's just true. But I'm not going to pay – there's no amount of money that you could pay me to do an ad for a company I don't believe in. And there, just there's no amount of money Apple know, could pay me. <laughs> well, yeah, no, Apple could pay me enough money and I would start believing in their stuff. But just to let the listeners know, we have been approached by other places wanting us to put stuff on the air and we've looked at their stuff and we've decided I don't really want to give them our, um, our platform right. as, as a spokesperson. So, you know, I mean, we love the Linux Academy. You know, I've, I've sampled their content. I pay for them. Uh, 
I like the way their lessons work. When I've had questions, I've reached out to Anthony and, you know, a lot of times I, I do off hours when I'm on it and I don't expect him to be up at one o'clock in the morning, but I will get a response the next day, which, you know, when I was in college, I never got a response that fast from a professor. Um, but yeah, believe in them because they do good stuff. And not only they do it well, but they do it incredibly affordably. $25 a month is the most you can pay. That's their most expensive plan. Buy it for a month, $25, check it out, the cost of, an, of a gourmet pizza. And if you don't like it, you're done. You walk away. But if you do like it, and I know you're going to, and you want to save a little money, just like anything, the more you buy, the more you save, buy three months, buy a quarter, that's $20. If you really want to take the plunge and buy a full year, uh, that's $199. It's not $20 for three months, it's $20 a month for $60 for the quarter. $199 annually, which breaks down to just under $17 a month. Um, and this is the most native ad we've ever done for them, <laughs> and I'm and I'm okay with that. Uh, so when you go, when you check it out, and I know you're going to use the code Everyday Linux to let them know that we sent you. So that was an ad, by the way. Surprise, surprise. Um, but it's it was an ad that I'm okay with you skipping, and I think Anthony is too, because if you've heard it and you've already made your choice, that's not for me. You're not the audience anymore. So, you know, that's, there's a, that's part of this broken process that we've talked about. So we, you know, we started talking about the podcast, um, uh, patent, and then we moved into free music and then copyright and all that sort of stuff. So we're stumbling around here, uh, talking about things. So to continue stumbling anymore, uh, even more just this week, uh, the illustrious president, uh, Barack Obama of the United States, uh, made his recommendation to the FCC, which, by the way, means absolute zero. Uh, the president in this country has no power uh, over the FCC. Um, he simply made a recommendation, and you can go find it at, at whitehouse.gov. The link is in the net. It's whitehouse.gov. Link is in the, the link is in the notes uh, at elementopi.com. I'm putting in the chat room for the people watching live. But it's whitehouse.com slash net-neutrality. And uh, it starts off with basic political stuff. I made this promise during my campaign and I'm going to carry through with this promise, yada, yada, yada. And then it gets into what he thinks the FCC should do. He wants to, he wants the FCC to use their power to reclassify internet providers as common carriers under title two of the communications act. What the heck does that even mean? Uh, I'm going to I'm going to back up there because we hear that term all the time. I, if you listen to other podcasts uh, or read blogs, you're going to hear title two and you're going to hear common carriers. Let's do some background on that. So the Communications Act is the law in the country that essentially formed the FCC, uh, Federal Communications Commission. It began in 1934. Communications Act of 1934. So that's how old we're talking about here. What was the state of the art in 1934? Ladies wearing headphones, plugging things into switchboards. That was the state of the art in 1934. So that's what this law was written to deal with. And and many of the things that they talk about are that old and arcane. AM radio was state of the art. Yes. I don't even think they had FM then, just AM. No. FM came on later. Well, I mean, the the brand the band existed, but it wasn't a consumer product. Um, so it was updated. It was made fresh and new in 1996, <laughs> 18 years ago. So that's not exactly all that new and fresh. 
Wow. But I mean, it's the best that we, we have to offer. What were we doing in 96? Were we even up to 14.4 modems, or did that come later? Uh, 96 was right around the 14.4 mark. Yeah. Uh, there was no 33, the 33.6. There was no DSL. Uh, there was no, uh, well, Yahoo no, just got started. Yeah. They, they were, uh, right. and they, they were, a, they were like a, these are sites we've liked right. kind of thing. The original CompuServe was king. Yeah. AOL, baby. So, yeah, that's, that's when this was quote unquote updated. So as the, you know, um, uh, conservative libertarian that I have made myself out to be, you can see why I have issues with this already. Um, when legislatures, when they take years to get a new law into action and companies rise and fall while they're arguing over the law, that's a problem. Government cannot move at the speed of technology, and technology better not move at the speed of government. So, all right. So moving right along, uh, a lot of this comes from um, from my own research, but uh, a lot of it also comes from a GigaOM article uh, about Title II and net neutrality. Uh, and again, that note will also be uh, that link will also be in the show notes, and I'm putting it in the chat room for the people watching live. Um, and I'm just going to break down a little bit about what what Title II actually means. So currently, broadband providers are classified as information services under Title I of the Communications Act, specifically Section 706, I think it is. Um, and so they have certain certain rules uh, uh, around what they can do because they're not the people who maintain the copper and the cables. They're the people who run stuff over them. That's how they're uh, they're they're classified right now, which is partly true, right? So I'm an internet provider. I send you bits, but it also happens that I own the copper and the fiber that the bits run down and you don't get bits unless I run a cable to your house. So yes, I'm title one, but that's pretty clearly title two, two, which makes them telecommunication services. Remember now we're going back to AT&T, uh, Ma Bell territory. So these are the people that that run the wire to your house. So an argument could be made for Title II or Title III. Uh, excuse me, Title I or Title II uh, for communications uh, companies. But you can't be both. So here's one of the, the, the powerful things. And, and they're both, again, they they're have some onerous and outdated stuff in it. But Title II has a particular clause in it that allows for forbearance. And that's the magic word where the FCC is concerned. Forbearance means that they get the right to choose which parts of Title II and which parts of the Communication Acts they uh, enforce. Like we were talking about with the cop on the side of the road. He is exercising forbearance when you pass him going 67 and a 65. He has decided that you're not worth the time and effort, though you are, in fact, a criminal. He is exercising the right of forbearance. So Title I doesn't allow for forbearance. There are rules, and you follow them. As such, Title I has fewer rules uh, and less far-reaching. Title II has more strict rules, uh, and, and there's governance there for the FCC to decide whether to, to put them in place or not. So Title I is more about what is being transmitted, while Title II is more about the act of doing the transmission. 
I just ran through that in a hurry. Seth, any questions or comments based on that? No, I, I think you're you're doing good, and I've got some comments, but I don't think we're to the point to let them start flowing out yet. Okay. So, but yeah, Seth, you know, Seth if, is my Seth didn't do any research, and I did. So Seth, Seth is my BS detector here. <laughs> if he sees something he, that doesn't make sense, he's going to call me on it. All right, so let's talk a little bit about what uh, what forbearance means. And here's the power of the FCC. And again, this is why I, as an anti-government conservative, have problems with this. Um, because it gives the FCC a lot of power over telecommunications companies. Now, I don't think that telecommunications companies are doing right with their power right now. And I, you know, I've made the stand a few times that I think regulation for the Internet, it may be time for that. And I hate regulation. But here's some, some some reasons I have a problem with with uh, um, Title II because the FCC then gets to choose. They could either regulate Tier One providers, um, interconnections between Netflix and Comcast, Comcast and Level Three, Level Three and name it uh, YouTube, right? They could choose to focus only on that and leave the last mile alone. We're not going to have any input on how you get internet to the house we're just going to talk about how you deal with each other they have that they could do that they could also flip the coin and only worry about last mile we want to make sure that broadband internet uh, we're going to define broadband as 50 megabits and we're going to make sure that it's affordable to every american they have the right to do that they could they could essentially price fix because they can set caps on prices but they can leave the backdoor dealings uh, between uh, Google and Amazon and and uh, Comcast and and AT and T alone, let that be the Wild West, and only crack down on where the the individual is concerned. They can do either of those. They can do both of those if they want. FCC can set price caps, or they can simply say that that pricing has to be equal. So you set a price, we'll let you set whatever the price is, but it's got to be equal. It's got to be the same price for everybody. They have, the, they have the right to do that. Or what is most likely going to happen, they're going to do nothing until somebody complains. And then they're going to argue over, they're going to make a ruling on that one issue and say, Comcast, you cannot extort Netflix to pay for your router. Go back in and give them a, a check or, or upgrade your equipment because you can't do this, but they're not going to make any rules. They're going to they're going to take a wait and see action. And then they become the Supreme Court of the Internet. So those are those. That's the power of forbearance. That's why uh, Title II is a good thing, and also why it's a bad thing. Yeah, you know, first of all, it only works if uh, if we as users we should be responsible citizens of the internet and. The sad part is a lot of this is because there's that small minority of people and I think torrenters, you know, yes, you have, if you're paying for content, you can torrent tons of crap, but the nature of torrent, you should throttle your speed and only use so much of it because you don't need it all the time. But that was just kind of a little aside thing. The The problem is we've want to make ourselves out to be an information age society. Well, in order for us to be, for information to be the currency of the new millennium, everybody should have the same access to all the information that's out there. 
And unfortunately, this is one of the things to where, you know, the government should have some type of standard that needs to be maintained. You know, not everybody can just throw a road up on public land. You know, the contractors have to do a minimum level. And if they don't put a minimum level into it, then there's fines and they have to fix it and that kind of stuff. Um, if we just go out and just can do whatever, like I think of our podcast, you know, you, uh, you have Concast as your ISP. So you pay Concast for the right to access the internet. Well, somebody who is using say AT&T, AT&T could say you can't access Element Opie's podcast because Element Opie isn't paying enough and paying us enough money. I, I have so well, many actually, thoughts and they're so jumbled up. Um, well, let me, let me but, let you think for a minute while I comment okay. on something. We, you said you, everybody should have access or, or, or that's, that's sort of the egalitarian attitude that we as Americans like to have. Everybody should have free and open access. This show every week, however, illustrates the fact that you and I don't have equal access. So you drove an hour from your house to get to a connection that was good enough to do the show. But anybody who's listening live right now hears about every fourth word you say because your connection sucks. But you had to drive an hour to get to a connection that sucks. Whereas I had just just had to walk down to the basement to get a much uh, better signal than you. So we already are not equal. And and it's there's no amount of money you can throw at it to have the kind of bandwidth I do simply because where you choose to live. So we're already unequal. And that's what the the more liberal politicians like to, to point at and say that we need, uh, you know, a, an Internet Bill of Rights or something like that. Um, there is fodder for the, that kind of arguments because we are already so unequal. Well, you know, part of that, though, I have chosen to pay for a lower standard. I could get higher speeds at my house if I wanted to pay the money. And I understand because of where I chose to live, the benefits of living out in the country, one of the drawbacks is there's less of a pool of people to pay to sustain high-speed Internet access. So if I'm going to have the same speed of access of someone in Atlanta, it's going to take a lot more money for me because simply there aren't enough people to support it. Uh, so I understand that, but that's not – and. I don't know what I want to say here. <laughs> That's not the problem to me. You know, there's higher speeds that are available if I chose to pay for them at my house. I I choose to get out of debt. Therefore, I choose a slower speed, something that I can live with the headaches involved with that. But what I don't like is all of the other backroom shenanigans that I can't access stuff because of these other deals that happen out there, it's like I pay to be on the internet. Someone else shouldn't have to pay to see me because they've also paid for the right to be on the internet. You know, right. it, it's like the whole Comcast versus Netflix thing, you know, and Comcast is saying, well, we shouldn't have to support Netflix. No, but you should have to support your customers who have chosen that they want to see Netflix. Yep. You shouldn't have to be getting double and triple dipping off of the same transaction. You know, um, so that's what I am against. And if it takes Title II to eliminate that crap, um, in that sense, I'm okay with Title II. Now, there's some other aspects that it's like, 
overall, I think the good would outweigh the bad, um, but maybe just because I haven't thought it through enough. So let's go back to this, uh, the president's uh, recommendations. Here's his recommendations. Um, I'm just going to read straight from the West website. It says, the FCC is an independent agency, and ultimately this decision is theirs alone, meaning I'm entirely power- powerless and this is strictly a political move. Um, I believe the FCC should, FCC should create a new level, new set of rules protecting net neutrality and ensuring that neither the cable company nor the phone company will be able to act as a gatekeeper, restricting what you can, what you can do or see online. The rules I'm asking for are simple, common sense steps that reflect the internet I, you and I use every day and, and that some ISPs already observe. These bright line rules include no blocking. If a consumer requests access to a website or service and the content is legal, your ISP should not be permitted to block it. Number two, no throttling. Nor should ISPs be able to intentionally slow down some content or speed up others through a process often called throttling based on the type of service your ISP preferences. Next, increased transparency. The connection between consumers and ISPs, the so-called last mile, is not the only place that some sites might get special treatment. So I'm also asking the FCC uh, to make full use of the transparency authorities the court recently upheld, and if necessary, to apply net neutrality rules to points of interconnections between ISPs and the rest of the Internet. And lastly, no paid prioritization. Simply put, no service should be stuck in a slow lane because it does not pay a fee. That kind of gatekeeping would undermine the level playing field essential to the Internet's growth. So as I have before, I am asking for an explicit ban on paid prioritizations and other restrictions that have a similar effect. Mr. President, perhaps for the first time in your tenure, I agree with every word you've just said. Me too. Those are all, those are all good things. That is the essence of net neutrality. The FCC, should they assert their Title II rights, would have the right to do every one of those things, but also the right to do a lot of other things. So there's the problem. Uh, as it is right now, they don't have that power. They can't make these rules because they can't um, control Title I, Section 706 people uh, that strongly. They can Title II people. So they have to reclassify them. And the court. The Supreme Court said, you have the right to do this. And in fact, we recommend, so again, a, a Supreme Court that did the right thing. They said, look, we're not in the business of making laws, but here's the law that already exists that you can exert if you want to do this and bring that back to us and we will uphold it. So the, the, this is the essence of net neutrality. And I'm super happy to see the highest ranking government official in the country espousing these things. Just hope it happens, but it's got to happen those things and nothing else. Yeah. So how do you get those things? You know, I mean, I see a two tiered pricing structure, uh, for ISPs, the amount of data that can go through your pipe at one time and two, the total amount of data used. And it needs to be something, you know, reasonable, like, you know, you know, you're paying so much per gig. Uh, and if you want to be able to download a gig a second, those prices can run up in a hurry. Uh, but and that's the way, by the way, that's the way in this country we pay for electricity and it's the way we pay for water and it's the way we pay for gas. There is a service fee 
that I pay for to have the natural gas connected to my house. The person who built this house had to pay that fee. I didn't build this house. I'm renting it, but they did. It was a certain amount of money to pay to have that gas line run to the house. When I moved in, I set up a service with them X amount a month just to have that line there. And then based on the amount of gas I use, based on a meter out front, I pay per, I don't even know what it is, per unit of something. So the internet being paid that way would make sense and would fall in line with the way we all pay for other utilities, the way we pay for electricity, the way we pay for water. There's a basic service that you pay just to get it, and then you pay for how much you use. I'm actually okay with that, but it is also, as I've said before, it's measuring the wrong thing. You're measuring something that's infinite. So in the case of water, gallons of water are not infinite. It is a zero-sum game. Every one I use, somebody else doesn't have access to. That's not the case for bits. So the more, the more accurate way to, to measure bandwidth is the size of the pipe, 10 gigs, uh, 10 megabits, 20 megabits, whatever. Um, and then if you want to turn that faucet on and leave it running all the time, nobody is hurt by that in terms of the amount of bits in the universe. Um, but that model doesn't fit every other model the way we pay for, for things in the U.S. And so to bring that into compliance, I would be okay with paying per bit if the price per bit were reasonable, as in fractions of a penny per bit. Where, where right now, on my cell phone, I pay per bit, and I pay an exorbitant amount per bit. So if you bring that in line, I would be okay with that model. Yeah, it, it should, you know, in today, all of the stuff, you really should pay per gig. And, you know, it's like you crossed over the three gig mark. So you're paying for four, even though you only use 3.1, you know, sucks for your bad luck. You pay for nine tenths of a gig. You didn't use that month, but it it needs to be something not $4,000 for the first gig and $2 for every gig after that. Something like that is stupid, but just, you know, for every gig you use, you're paying X and then you can have a filter or, you know, you should be able to like go to a website and you could log in and see how much you've used. You go to your ISP's website and you log in with your username and password, X amount of bits used. And then, you know, you can refresh and use some more bits to find out how much more you've paid. And then uh, you can then go accordingly, you know. But here's the problem with that. And that that is that in the case of the electric meter or the gas meter, there is a hardware device attached to my house that measures my usage. Right. And federal laws require that those those meters be accurate and be measured. And I can call somebody and I can have them audited. If I don't believe it, I have as a customer have the right to request them put a new meter in. And they are they must do it. Um, I have to give them probable cause. But if I think my water is just way too high every month, and I, I don't think I've got a leak, I think your meter's wrong. I can request them to put in a new meter, and they have to do it. The trouble with measuring bits is because they're infinite and because they're copied and because they're compressed and because they're they're proxied, it becomes very, very difficult to measure the bits. And so you end up with so so we put a meter at the outside of my house on, you know, measuring all the bits that come into my router. So then I can set up a proxy service and maximize my use inside. Okay, that would be a useful thing to do. But then the ISP could put a proxy service on the outside that services all of my area. They can maximize the bandwidth. They're paying the bits once and charging everybody in the neighborhood the bits. 
You can't do that with water. Every gallon of water that comes from the original source is the same gallon of water all the way through. You can't copy gallons of water. You can't compress gallons of water. But with bits, um, the the ISP can can download a bit one time, load it on their proxy server, and feed that bit to everybody else. So then you end up with a you know a, a an artificial profit factory, in that sense. I would be kind of okay with that, though. I mean, you know, if they have a caching server in your neighborhood where it makes their downstream costs cheaper because, you know, these other routers aren't running all the time, but they've already got the data in their network, I'm okay with that. So, you know? okay, as as a capitalist, so am I. But it flies in the face of that all connections are equal because now you are, by definition, charging people more for the same bits then you're charging from somebody else. So so they're paying level three, their provider, X amount per bit, and they're getting from us 50X per bit. That flies in the face of the very FCC regulation that we're talking about that would re- require that everything be equal. See, I don't understand that because they've paid for the amount of bits they've used. To me, I don't see a difference between this and one farmer who let's say it takes a hundred gallons of water to irrigate an acre. Well, this one farmer found a technique and he can do it in 50. So he's getting the same result, but it's only costing him half as much. So therefore his produce is cheaper because he's found a better way to farm. So my ISP has downloaded every bit they need. You know, they have, they have their access charge and their bit that they're paying their connector. And then they're able to turn around and maximize their return on that bit. They're not giving somebody else bits they didn't, you know, they didn't steal those bits. They just found another way to use them. Like I said, I don't disagree with you, but I'm trying to play out how this is going to happen in the the court and the judicial system once the laws are in place. Somebody's going to raise a fit about that. And under this Title II regulation, the FCC then has the power to step in and sanction Comcast for doing things more efficiently than AT&T. I don't understand that. I mean, what you're, <laughs> what you're saying, it doesn't make sense to me. That's because it's a liberal mindset and you don't understand liberal mindsets. But uh, I just, I'm just saying this is an example of something that I could see down the line causing problems if we give the FCC not only the power but the mandate to make sure that everybody's equal because then your definition of equal becomes the the thing and and we all know that that equal is a is a, a floating definition yeah, certainly was, in politics uh, George Washington made a comment and I don't remember word for word but he said our system of government was developed for a uh, moral and upright people. It is wholly inadequate for anything else. Um, and that's true of any system. It's like if everybody would just seek to do the right thing, then a lot of this regulation wouldn't matter. The problem is nobody's seeking to do the right thing. Everybody is seeking to screw their neighbor out of everything they can. Uh, and the ISPs are, they were given godlike powers by the state um, in terms of monopolies or duopolies. And so they don't, they aren't used to having to play well and cooperate and be nice with their rivals because for so many times there aren't any rivals for them, right. uh, you know, and so therefore they're not used to having to play nice. Whereas 
I have neighbors. You know, I can't just go and say, hey, you know, I don't want to have to run the fence across this river, this stream that runs through my pasture. I'm just going to go over here 20 feet where it's an easier four. And it's like, nope, that's my neighbor's place. I can't do that. So, uh, you know, but I have a neighbor. I have to play nice. Uh, a cable company who, by their very definition, they were sold by the state. You're you win the franchise for this place right. right here. Nobody else is allowed to compete. So they don't have to play nice. They're used to just sticking it to whoever they want, however they want to. And one of the reasons they could have that monopoly is because they were Title I entities. They didn't have the rules of Title II and fair market. So the FCC could literally divide up the state and say AT&T gets this, uh, Time Warner gets this, or they weren't Time Warner at the time, Comcast gets this. Uh, and that's how it is. But and because you're Title One entities, you don't have to play fair. So now we're going to reclassify them as Title Two entities and totally destroy the foundation of the business that they built themselves on. That's dangerous. I, I and again, I think you're right. If they would just not be jerks, we wouldn't need to do this. But they've proven consistently that they're all jerks. Right. And not only are they jerks, they are, they are actively researching how to maximize their jerkiness. <laughs> so, and that unfortunately is one thing they excel at. I, I want to touch on this whole fast lane thing or, or the, he talked about slow lanes, right? The, the internet service providers like to sell it as fast lanes. We're going to have this, this, uh, expanded suite of services that you can get for a fee. But as the president pointed out in his uh, his website thing there, um, by if there's a fast lane, by definition, there has to be a slow lane, slow lane. And so it really seems to me like a like a protection racket. It would be an unfortunate thing if somehow his connections to the interweb should be slowed down. But if you pay me, I could make sure that that doesn't happen. And, and so the, we would give them that kind of power. That's what they're looking for. That's the. Um, the Comcast and well, th that's the FCC as think the proposal that they came up with right now. That's, that's the working law of the land. I think it was Google and, and, and Comcast and Verizon. That's what it was. Google and Verizon put these things together and sold this package of, no, it's a, it's a premium service. Really? Um, and again, it's not the law, it's just the proposal that's going forth to the FCC right now. One of the things that they have been given is this proposal by this cohort of people saying, yeah, we're just going to have a premium service and everybody else gets crap. But no, the premium service is good. Um, the president, in his proposal, says, no, we're, we're not, we're not going to do that. There's no such thing as a fast lane or a slow lane. And again, I find myself in the odd position of agreeing with our president. Yeah, it kind of makes me wonder what's wrong with my position. I know, I know <laughs> your feeling, but uh, no, it, and you know, and of course, who's the chairman of the FCC now? Gee, he used to be a lobbyist for AT and T, so I'm, he's all in favor of what's best for the consumer because that's what government is for. And and that's what in the GigaOM article that that I've uh, linked to and quoting and quoting from, that's their final assessment is that because the FCC is a group of politicians. And because they are often in the pocket of the lobbyists for the uh, communications companies, this won't happen. Title II won't happen because there won't be the political will to to cut off your own throat uh, by angering your biggest contributors. 
Yeah, um, and it's great for all of our elected new officials, such as the president, Congress, or senators. They can rail against net neutrality, and they, but yeah. yet, and you know, they can talk and wax eloquence in their speeches, but unfortunately, they don't want to do the work necessary to uh, put teeth to their words. They just want to be able to talk about it and say, right. "We don't have the right, but it should be blah blah blah," you know. And that way they can say, they can go talk to the Comcast ISPs and the like of the world and say, Hey, we're going to talk a big talk against you. But as long as you keep giving us money to our campaigns, we won't really do anything about it. And they go, Hey, yeah, that's good. Thank you, Mr. Congressman. Uh, yeah. Got to love. So again, that, that's the political world. And, and I know you. If you you non-Americans out there who are listening, I warned you at the beginning that this was going to be inside baseball. But this applies to you, too, because in many cases, once one major uh, world power adopts something, it filters through. So there are many things that we do in the U.S. that started in Europe. And and if we if we assign these rules... It will be coming to you, coming to a theater near you uh, in summer 2015. Um, it's because it, we just need precedent. We just need somebody to point at and say, look, they did it first. Um, the, the woman you gave me gave me an apple and I saw that it was good to eat. Um, we just need somebody to blame. So the U.S. is is stepping out in front here, potentially, uh, and leading the world down a path. And we don't know yet whether it's a, a primrose path or a dark path. We we just have to do it and see. And that's scary to me as a limited conservative, uh, limited government believer. Um, you know, the those of you who are more trusting of the government and less trusting of business, uh, as many Europeans tend to be, uh, would probably see, well, this is a no-brainer. Give the government the power, take it away from big business. Me, I tend to trust business because I have more control over what business does in that we can bring down large companies. If you don't believe that's true, talk to MySpace. They were a large company. We brought them down by migrating over to Facebook. We could do the same to Facebook. Um, We have that power. Government is less so. We elect these people um, and they're there for a term and it's, it's harder to throw them out. Yep. We can do it, but it's harder. But again, we have a we have a duopoly in government. It's like we have limited yeah. choices yeah. that seem to all be the same thing. So you know, we have a, we have we don't have a monopoly in government, but we have a dual or a ugal. How do you, I can't say that word? Ugalopoly, the one where you know it's not run oligopoly. By one. Oligopoly, yeah. So we have an oligopoly. or oligarchy. That's called that too so um, yes i i've run out of of diarrhea of the mouth i have nothing more to say um and and i'm not an expert i don't play one on the internet but these are my thoughts and listener what are your thoughts i'm sure not everybody out there agrees with me but i also hope that not everybody out there disagrees with me what do you think about this let us know uh, over at elementopi.com and uh, i'm sure this is not the last we'll talk about this and it's also not the last time we're ever going to talk about star trek ready go seth all right so for my link of the week here a um and this is from io9 the top 100 star trek episodes of all time 
has ranked by them. And, uh, this is like all Star Trek, um, from the original series all the way through to Enterprise, uh, ranking the 100 that they thought were the best. So you can go through here and there's some really good ones in the list. Um, you know, I'm sure I can't think of what about this one, but you know, every time I come across one of those, it goes, Oh, that was a good one. Oh, that was a good one. Oh, that was a good one. Um, you know, and so. Yeah, there's there's several of them in here, and uh, I like them because I like. Stuff. I watched I watched my favorite episode just last night. Actually, the best Star Trek episode in all of the series, inclusive, is the skin of evil because Tasha Yar died, and that made it <laughs> the best ever. I didn't have to listen to her stiff line delivery ever again after that show. You know, at the time I thought she was. Uh, pretty easy on the eyes i liked it just because it was a show killing off a major character and to me that was awesome it's like oh my gosh she's a main character and she died nothing is safe and so um it It was was also a very dark episode and up to that point the original series and the next generation had been fairly lighthearted, and this was dark. There was no good. There was no redeeming quality of that that character, and and it was all about evil and violence. And um, the next one uh, that I also watched last night, uh, where the the lizard, the the little scorpion like things take over people, and they blast the mother one. And there's this bloody skeleton and open rib cage, and it's like this is this is unprecedented Star Star Trek history. Roddenberry went dark all of a sudden, and it really opened the door. The next several seasons got a lot better. So you know, I'm I'm making a joke there about Tasha Yar, but I really think it's a linchpin episode, if not the best episode. Yeah, it was really good. And I'm just scrolling through, man. I really enjoyed all the Star Treks. Um, really did. Even though Deep Space Nine was, um, Babylon five just by Paramount. Um, but I, I enjoyed both series. So DS nine and Babylon. Yeah. Sorry. I had a hard time getting, I had a hard time getting into DS nine. Um, it was the only one I didn't watch from beginning to end. The others I watched first episode through the last episode. Uh, okay, so sorry, geek, geek out over at uh, where's the website? Um, io nine io com. Yeah, lots of cool stuff. You know, io nine is if if you're a geek, you probably already know about it. But if you don't, you will fall in love with it. There's <laughs> lots of lists and content there that um you know that's a very geek heavy sector of the internet. I also started watching and couldn't finish. I I will go back. Um. Jeff Wheatley, listener um, in the uh, uh, the the forums, uh, not the forums, the Google Plus community, frequently um, pointed me toward the Star Wars holiday special um, that was that came out in 1978 after the first movie. Um, it was gloriously bad, and it's available for view on archive.org for free. Uh, complete with crappy Kenner commercials uh, back in the day. I I got through. It wasn't long in, but the the psychedelic dance routine while Chewbacca's son watched on with all the ridiculous blue screen effects that were so uh, the rage at the time. Uh, And then I I had to go. Uh, I didn't get to finish it, but I I will make myself sit through it. I remember that one 
back when it first came out. I sat down and watched that with my granddad uh, on his black and white TV um, because he didn't believe in color TVs yet. He thought that's a new technology and he wouldn't because uh, he wouldn't believe in it. Um, later, he, he got onto it. But but at the time, it was like his 19-inch black and white TV uh, up on the shelf in his – I remember sitting – I was six years old at the time. I remember sitting in his lap in his little Barca lounger thing watching this this amazing, awesome work of art. It was the best thing I had ever seen in my life. Um, and now watching it, it's it's great for another reason. It's great for the same reason that Sharknado is great. I'm going to watch it. I haven't watched it yet, but it, it's on my bucket list. Shows you uh, how little is on my bucket <laughs> list, actually. <laughs> um, I distinctly remember uh, from watching it early on that there was a, a Wookiee, I think it was a Wookiee, cooking show. And they like did a recipe for cookies. And it was somehow you could hear her speaking in English. So maybe there was a translator involved or a dubbing or something like that. But that was one of my memories as a child because uh, there's a line in there, something like a pinch of salt, and you know what a pinch is for your species, you know, uh, something like that. I just remembered that line for some reason sticking out uh, as a kid. Maybe okay. I made it up. Maybe the Wookiee no, never it, actually said anything. No, it's there. Um, via uh, Chewbacca, via a local cooking show by an eccentric forearm alien cook. So I just Googled yeah. Wookiee cooking show. <laughs> and uh, and the second entry is the Star Wars holiday special uh, entry on Wikipedia. Oh, I love you, Google. <laughs> so, yes, uh, Seth can uh, definitely lower your productivity this week by arguing. I mean, I could see Reddit blowing up over arguing over the top 100 episodes. I had these two great employees, but I had to fire them because one was saying <laughs> TOS and the other one was saying DS9 over and over. Yeah. And uh, Kirk had no problem violating the prime directive anytime he wanted. I've, I've actually heard arguments like that. It's awesome. Um, where I work, the doctor, Doctor Who is, is the guy. And so I hear geeks talking about Doctor Who uh, which I never got into. Uh, in fact, I've never seen a full episode of it. And somebody just turned me off right there. Just said, I'm never going to listen to you again because I said that. I um, loved Doctor Who back like from when I was younger. And, you know, I even remember when I went to the uh, World Jamboree for scouting that I had my parents with VHS record the Doctor Who episodes I was missing. And I watched them when I got back home. Yeah. Uh, I, I just wasn't able to get into the new series. Just, uh, you know, I'm not a big DVR person. I am, I'm cheap like that. And I just, I'm not around TV when it's on. I saw most of the first season with the new doctor. Um, uh, I like Rose though, cause I'm a single guy. Uh, most all of us do. <laughs> so, so yeah, I don't even know what that means. Uh, but I hear spirited discussions about which doctor, the 10th or the first or the sixth or whatever. Um, 
All right, so this is the part of the show where I tell you how you can contact me. I've already done that a little bit. Elementopi.com. Click the Contact Us button at the top of the page or send an email to edl at elementopi.com, and uh, that will go to us. Or if you want to have your own voice on the air right alongside us, um, you can dial 559-IMOP or use the Contact Us uh, or the Leave Us a Voicemail rather widget at the top of the page on the website. Either of those do the same thing. It'll leave a voicemail on Google Voice, um, and then we'll play it on the show. Also, I just want to remind you as Christmas time comes up, um, if you would do your Amazon shopping at aluminopi.com slash Amazon, I would be much appreciated. No change in the experience for you. No cost difference to you. We just get a little kickback for sending you there. Um, also, uh, if you're so inclined to to give to support us directly, we appreciate the Patreon love. We did release last week a buffer overflow episode, so when we don't get the news in, when we have a show like this where we uh, don't do everything, we um, collate those into a buffer overflow, and we throw that on to only our Patreon subscribers. They get that. You don't have to pay much. You can pay a penny and get access to that over at elementopi.com slash Patreon. And uh, we appreciate the love there. Uh, Seth, any other final comments before we say goodnight? Uh, tune in next week when we talk about Z-Town versus uh, Walking Dead. <laughs> okay. Z-Town, is that a zombie show? Yes, produced by The Asylum. Oh, awesome. Um, all right. So, uh, Chris, we missed you. Seth, thanks for being with uh, with me this week, and uh, you, the listener, we appreciate you sticking around for an hour and 35 minutes plus of us pontificating about things that we know nothing about, uh, which is not unusual. Uh, but thank you. We only do this because you're out there, and you're listening, and we appreciate it. And for now, that ends this episode of Everyday Likes. <laughs>